I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Today, I'm bringing back a previous episode of Murderish. It's the case of Jennifer Turner, who was in the midst of a bitter divorce. The divorce brought out the worst in both parties. Past mistakes, love affairs, and previous marriages were all fair game. At a certain point, however, all of the fighting ended, but not in a way that anyone would have wanted. Just as the divorce proceedings began, they quickly came to a halt after Jennifer Turner was murdered. Or was she? The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Oftentimes, divorces are messy, hurt feelings, large sums of money, and decisions regarding custody of children only add to the stress that a separation can bring. In the case we're examining today, a divorce brought out the worst of those involved. Past mistakes, love affairs, and previous marriages were all fair game. At a certain point, all of the fighting ended, but not in a way that anyone would have wanted. The contentious divorce proceedings came to a halt when one of the parties was murdered. Or was she? This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish, Join me as I walk you through the controversial case involving Jennifer Turner. Kirk and Jennifer Turner live together with their two children in Clemens, North Carolina. Clemens is relatively small with just over 20,000 residents. 
Clemens has maintained the sleepy charm of colonial architecture, and walking through downtown feels as though you're walking back in time. The charming city was voted as one of the best places to live in North Carolina. Though small, Clemens has a booming economy, and many of the residents are very well off. The public schools are highly rated, making Clemens an attractive place to raise a family. With the perfect balance of rural and urban, the city seems almost too perfect, an aspect that would be called to attention when a tragic death occurred at the hands of one of Clemens' most prominent members. On September 12, 2007, around 9.35 p.m., Greg Smithson made a call to 911. He frantically explained that there were two injured people bleeding and that he desperately needed an ambulance. As medics were dispatched to his location, the 911 operator asked if anyone was in life-threatening danger. Greg responded that he thought someone may already be dead. At the instruction of the 911 operator, Greg began performing CPR on his dear family friend, Jennifer Turner. By the time medics arrived, she was pronounced dead at the scene. The other injured person Greg told the 911 operator about was Jennifer Turner's soon-to-be ex-husband, Kirk Turner. Jennifer married Kirk Turner in 1985, and together, they had two children, Wendy and Richie. From the outside, Jennifer and Kirk's marriage seemed idyllic. Kirk worked as a prominent dentist in Clements, North Carolina, where he brought home $650,000 per year. They lived a life of luxury and wanted for nothing. In 2005, Jennifer and Kirk bought a farm so that Jennifer could fulfill her dream of raising horses. Before meeting and marrying Kirk, Jennifer was married to another man. This marriage didn't last long and eventually ended in divorce. Jennifer was described by her friends and family as being kind and gentle, someone who would never show any anger. She was a loving mother, a caring wife, and a reliable friend. Everyone who met the tall, beautiful blonde loved her. She was a sweet but strong woman, whom everyone believed was a perfect match for the town's most successful dentist. On the outside, Jennifer's marriage to Kirk seemed perfect, but behind closed doors, it was obvious that something was wrong. Two years after moving to the farm, Jennifer's life seemed to be going so well. She had nine horses that she cared for each day. She felt fulfilled as she worked hard daily to keep the farm up. On top of this, she had a loving husband of 23 years, along with two grown children whom she loved dearly. Jennifer had a great circle of friends, her husband provided well for their family, and it seemed as though their life was moving along flawlessly. That is, until Kirk came home with devastating news. After 23 years of marriage, he told Jennifer he wanted a divorce. He confessed to his wife that for the past two weeks, he had been seeing someone else. The other woman turned out to be the couple's personal banker, Tanita Culliver. Though heartbroken, Jennifer was not blindsided. She had noticed that Kirk seemed distant and cold lately, and he'd been staying out later and later. Suspecting her husband may be up to something, 
Jennifer hired a private investigator to see where Kirk was when he wasn't at home or at work. Before he confessed his extramarital affair, Jennifer's PI showed her photos and videos of Kirk entering Tanita's home and leaving several hours later. Expecting Kirk's confession and request for separation, Jennifer offered her husband another scenario. Jennifer loved her life. She loved her community and loved her status and her farm. A divorce would be messy, embarrassing, and could destroy her life as she knew it. She told Kirk not to divorce her and said that if he was willing to stay married to her, she would let him continue his extramarital affair. He would be able to do whatever he wanted. He could move in with his girlfriend, take her on vacations. He was free to do as he pleased. In return, Jennifer asked that he stay married to her and attempt to keep up appearances in the community. Kirk was shocked at the offer and immediately refused to even consider the possibility of staying in what he described as a loveless marriage. After his refusal, Jennifer continued to resist her husband's request for a divorce. Kirk grew more and more upset each time his wife avoided the topic, and eventually he grew impatient. Jennifer confided in her daughter on one particular night, that while speaking with her father, Kirk told Jennifer there is more than one way to end a marriage. This terrified Jennifer, and she began taking precautions to protect herself from her husband, who she now saw as a threat. Jennifer purchased a secondary cell phone that she kept with her at all times. She also began locking her bedroom door at night, and also slept with weapons, including a bat, around her bed. Jennifer's daughter Wendy witnessed how terrified her mother had become of her father, and soon she became worried for her as well. Eventually, Jennifer agreed to the divorce. However, she wasn't going to go through the whole ordeal and be the only one publicly embarrassed. Jennifer filed an alienation of affection suit against Tonita Colvin, the other woman. This type of suit claims that the lover is the cause of the divorce and therefore should bear some of the financial burden of the partner who was cheated on, meaning that Tonita would have to pay Jennifer because of the affair. This lawsuit infuriated Kirk, who demanded that his wife revoke the lawsuit immediately. Jennifer refused, stating that everything in the suit was true and that she deserved the outcome of the lawsuit. Filing this lawsuit was one of the last actions Jennifer took before she was found dead inside of a shed at the feuding couple's home. The investigation into Jennifer's death began immediately. First responders tended to Kirk at the scene. It appeared he had suffered stab wounds. After treating him at the scene, first responders reported to law enforcement that Kirk was adamant that Jennifer attacked him first. He kept repeating this statement to everyone around him. He continued saying this well into the ride to the hospital. Greg Smithson, the friend who called 911, was quickly taken in to be interviewed. His account of the evening would be critical to putting together exactly what happened in the shed between Kirk and Jennifer. Investigators carefully reviewed the crime scene. Jennifer Turner lay dead on the floor of the shed, 
with multiple slashes to her throat and chest area. Blood spatter covered the floor, and a seven-foot spear was seen lying close by. It was obvious that a struggle had taken place. Authorities found two documents crumpled up on a table near the location where Jennifer's body lay. The documents were examined and revealed to be an affidavit from Jennifer's previous husband and in order to sell the ranch that Jennifer loved. The documents were taken in as evidence, along with the spear and other items. A medical examiner came to the scene to examine Jennifer's body. The examiner concluded that Jennifer died from blood loss after being severely cut twice in her throat and chest area. The cut to her throat was so deep, the medical examiner determined that she was centimeters away from being decapitated. Jennifer's clothing was removed and placed into evidence, and her body was transferred. After the scene had been examined and photographed, investigators called in a blood analyst team to determine whether the blood around the floor of the shed could help authorities understand what happened. The blood analyst team worked tirelessly to uncover everything the blood patterns could tell them about the scene of the attack. Their findings would later be used in court by both the prosecution and the defense. It was determined that Kirk had two stab wounds on his upper outer left thigh. The wounds went through his thigh towards the outside of his leg. Though he lost a lot of blood and required a blood transfusion, the injuries were determined not to be serious. Kirk was released from the hospital into the custody of police, where he was interrogated regarding his wife's death. Kirk didn't deny that he was responsible for Jennifer's death. He claimed that she had gotten angry and began stabbing him with a spear. In defense, Kirk said he took out a pocket knife he had on his person at the time and began swinging the knife at Jennifer to try to get her to stop attacking him. Kirk told authorities that he had no intention of killing his wife and that he didn't realize how badly he was hurting her until she stopped moving. He claimed that he had killed his wife because if he hadn't, she would have killed him. Kirk Turner was arrested and kept in police custody until bond was posted and paid. On the day that Jennifer was killed, Richie Turner, the estranged couple's son, was alerted by authorities about his mother's death. They explained to him everything they knew up to that point and told him that they would continue looking into what happened that night. Richie then called his sister and let her know the awful news. Gwendolyn, who goes by Wendy, was in disbelief when her brother broke the news. She was horrified, however. Wendy remembered that she didn't even have to ask her brother what happened to their mom. She knew that their father was responsible. The siblings, who had grown up close to one another, found themselves at odds. Wendy was positive that her father had malicious intent when he encountered her mother on the night of September 12, 2007. She believed that he had every intention of killing her mother. The divorce was stressful for everyone involved, and according to Wendy, her father had repeatedly accused her mother of trying to make the whole process as arduous and embarrassing for him as possible. This and other factors led her to believe that her father killed her mother intentionally. Richie, on the other hand, 
had grown closer to his father since the divorce process began. He had heard from his father that his mother had become increasingly aggressive, and Richie began experiencing some of her frustration in his own life. He recalled an incident at the ranch when she was belligerently screaming. Richie could picture how his mother might get angry enough to start attacking his father. He wholeheartedly believed that his father had acted in self-defense and in reaction to his mother's attack. This difference of opinion drew a hard line between the siblings, causing their relationship to falter to the point that they were no longer speaking to each other by the time the trial began. At their father's trial, the siblings sat on separate sides of the courtroom, Wendy sitting on the prosecution side, Richie sitting behind his father on the defense's side. Kirk Turner's trial began in late July 2009. Greg Brown led the prosecution, while Brad Bannon led the defense. The prosecution sought first-degree murder charges and planned to use forensic evidence to prove that Kirk was guilty of murdering his wife in cold blood. The defense took the position that Kirk had defended himself from his enraged wife. To begin the trial, the prosecution called to the stand Gwendolyn Wendy Turner. She was asked to recount for the jury what was happening within their family in the months leading up to her mother's death. Wendy told the jury that her mother had always loved horses and that more than anything, she wanted to own a farm where she could raise horses and teach others to love them as well. Only two years ago, their family had moved to the farm to allow Jennifer to live out that dream. She began raising horses and tending to the farm, a job that could take up to 12 hours each day. Wendy recalled that her parents' marriage began struggling during the time they lived on the farm. Her mother spent more time out on the land, and her father spent more time at work or other places she wasn't aware of. After two years of living on the farm, Wendy remembered that her father broke the heartbreaking news about his affair with another woman. Wendy told the court that her father's affair had been going on for over two weeks when he approached Jennifer about it. According to Wendy, her mother had suspected the affair long before Kirk confessed. Wendy said that her mother was adamantly against the divorce and offered Kirk a deal. Wendy explained that her mother told Kirk that if he promised not to divorce her, he could continue seeing his mistress on the side. She didn't care what they did together. They could sleep together, vacation together, anything he wanted, as long as he never left Jennifer. An outraged Kirk insisted that he still wanted a divorce. Wendy said Jennifer tried everything she could to prevent that. When asked by the prosecution if she was ever fearful of her father, Wendy responded that he could be very frightening when he was angry. She recalled several occasions when she was scared of her father when he was upset. Wendy also told the jury that her mother was very frightened of him as well. She said that at one point, Kirk told Jennifer, there is more than one way to end a marriage. Terrified by the implication of this, Jennifer began fearing for her life. Wendy remembered her mother becoming paranoid, going so far as to lock her personal bedroom door at night, sleeping with a second cell phone under her pillow, and having multiple weapons around her room 
just in case she may need them. Wendy was saddened to see her mother so scared, but she recalled that it wasn't a disproportionate response, as what her father said really sounded like a threat. Richie was called to the stand next. When asked about his mother's temperament, Richie said that she was kind, but that she had a very aggressive side that most people never saw. He remembered her yelling, shoving, and generally being incredibly angry whenever she got upset. Richie told the jury that her temper got worse after they moved to the farm, and that she started spending more and more time with her horses, and less time with her family. Richie went as far as to say that he had, at one point, been threatened by his mother with a horse whip while they were out on the farm. He testified that his father was always calm, even during arguments, and that he would never harm anyone, especially the mother of his children. The defense called another witness who would aid in painting Jennifer Turner as an angry and violent woman. While processing their divorce, Kirk Turner had an appraiser come to the farm to take a look at Jennifer's jewelry. The appraiser reported for the court that Jennifer was in the room while she worked. Jennifer pointed out that some of the jewelry the appraiser was looking at was purchased before she and Kirk were married. The appraiser testified that she told Jennifer it didn't matter when the jewelry was purchased, it would all be appraised together. According to the appraiser, this infuriated Jennifer, who began yelling for the appraiser to get out of her house. Then, she shoved her out of the room. The appraiser recalled that she was pregnant at the time, and out of fear for herself and her unborn child, she left immediately. There was no one who could corroborate this story, so the jury was left to decide whether or not it was true. After they had built an outline of what the months leading up to Jennifer's death looked like, the prosecution then decided to call to the stand Greg Smithson, one of Kirk Turner's best friends, and the man who was present on the night Jennifer was killed. Greg recounted for the court that he occasionally did jobs on the farm for Kirk and Jennifer. After Kirk filed for divorce, Jennifer realized that Greg had some heavy machinery still at the farm. Jennifer called Greg and asked him to come pick up the machinery so she could have more space in the shed where it was being stored. Greg said he agreed to come pick it up, but asked if it would be okay to get Kirk to help him move the heavier things. Though Jennifer and Kirk were in the middle of their divorce, Jennifer realized that Greg would need some help and agreed that Kirk could come with him. The two men went to the farm in the early evening on September 12th. The pair met up with Jennifer at the shed. At first, Greg remembered that everything seemed fine. They were getting Greg's things ready to move, lightly talking, and focusing on the task at hand. Then, Greg told the court things started to get a little more heated. The conversation became more focused on Kirk's affair and the pending divorce. Feeling awkward, Greg announced that he was going to take some of the things to the truck to load up. He said he then walked away in order to avoid the awkward conversation. He told the court that as he was walking out of the shed, he recalled hearing words like sex and reconciliation. He noted that it was around 8 p.m. when he walked away from the shed. Once he was at the truck, Greg loaded up the equipment he had brought with him and began heading back to the shed. It was at this time 
Greg said that he heard some noises coming from the shed. As he approached, Greg saw Kirk run out of the shed, covered in blood, screaming that Jennifer had attacked him. Greg recalled thinking that he had only been gone for two to three minutes. He said he ran into the shed and saw Jennifer on the ground, cut and covered in blood. Greg told the court that he immediately went for the phone that was in the shed and dialed 911. He reported that he had two injured people at the property and was worried that one of them might be dead. Greg said he was prompted to begin CPR on Jennifer, which he claims he quickly did. During the time that he was on the phone with 911, Greg said that Kirk was panicking and screaming that Jennifer had attacked him and that he was protecting himself. By the time first responders arrived, Kirk was still screaming. He was taken away and Greg would later learn that he was treated for blood loss and shock. Greg said he watched as first responders attempted to save Jennifer. However, she was quickly pronounced dead at the scene. To fill in the gaps in Greg's testimony, Kirk Turner was called to the stand to testify. The public was shocked that he willingly took the stand. However, the defense saw this as a way to paint their client as a man who had nothing to hide. Kirk never shied away from the fact that he killed his wife. He took responsibility, saying that it was his knife and his actions that caused Jennifer to be cut and bleed out. However, Kirk maintained that it was the only way he could have kept himself alive. He told the courtroom that the events of that night were set into motion much earlier than September 12th. According to Kirk, Jennifer had begun filing a lawsuit against Tonita Colvin for alienation of affection. This angered Kirk to the point that he knew he had to fight back. He understood that his wife was upset, but he was mad that Jennifer was attacking his lover. In an attempt to prevent this lawsuit from moving forward, Kirk prepared a couple of documents himself. The first document was an affidavit from Jennifer's first husband. Within this affidavit was a statement that Jennifer's first marriage was ruined when she began giving more time and attention to her horses rather than her marriage, a situation similar to the one Kirk had experienced. The second document was a court order to sell the farm and the property on the farm as a result of the divorce. Forcing Jennifer to get rid of her horses and the farm would break her. Kirk planned to bring these documents to Jennifer's attention the next time he saw her. Soon after he completed the two documents, Kirk said he got a call from his best friend Greg, who needed to pick up some equipment from Jennifer's farm. He said that Greg asked if he could help. Kirk agreed and made sure to bring the two documents along with him. Kirk told the courtroom that once Greg had left the shed, he showed Jennifer the documents he had with him. He said he told Jennifer that he would use them if she didn't drop the alienation of affection suit against his mistress. According to Kirk, that was the point at which Jennifer got angry. He alleged that Jennifer wadded up the documents he handed to her and then she grabbed the weapon that was closest to her, a nine-foot decorative spear that sat leaned up in the corner of the shed. Kirk claimed that when he realized how upset Jennifer was, he begged her to calm down so they could talk. He said he tried to reason with her 
and told her that he wouldn't use the documents unless she forced him. Kirk told the jury that Jennifer would not calm down and that she was poking the spear in his direction. As Kirk tried to calm down his enraged wife, he claimed he began feeling a searing pain in his thigh and realized that Jennifer had just stabbed him with the spear. Astonished and in shock, Kirk said he watched as she lunged toward him again with the spear, stabbing his thigh once more. At this point, Kirk said he pulled out a pocket knife that he always had in his pocket. He claimed that he was terrified of Jennifer, and he believed she intended to kill him. Kirk said he opened up his pocket knife, which had a four-inch blade, and began swinging it blindly in the general direction of his wife. Kirk then stood up on the stand and mimicked the way he allegedly wielded his knife. He stood with his eyes closed, arm fully extended, waving his hand back and forth with a soft swing. Kirk claimed that once he stopped swinging his knife, he opened his eyes and saw that he was standing over Jennifer, who was lying motionless on the floor. It was at that point he ran outside of the shed, frantically telling Greg what happened. During the prosecution's cross-exam of Kirk, Brown, who led the prosecution, asked, When did you decide to kill your wife? Kirk responded, I couldn't tell you. Though Kirk Turner had presented a somewhat believable story, the prosecution knew that the evidence contradicted some of what he claimed, enough to likely cause doubt in the minds of the jury. Jennifer had been centimeters away from being decapitated. The prosecution pointed out that near decapitation is not likely to occur from someone blindly waving around a small pocket knife. Some experts also thought that the wounds on Kirk's thighs were almost too clean and convenient. One forensic expert who assessed Jennifer and Kirk's injuries noted that Kirk's two stab wounds were almost perfect. They were on the outer sides of his thigh, through the skin and fat, not muscle or bone, and the stab wounds were perfectly clean. This would mean that the blade would have to go in and come out in a smooth manner, without ever twisting, shaking, or moving in any way that could tear Kirk's leg. If Kirk's story was true, the expert believed that an agitated and enraged Jennifer would have produced much messier cuts that would cause a lot more damage than what was present on Kirk's leg. In fact, the type of wounds they found on Kirk were injuries that would typically indicate self-infliction. Authorities who initially examined the crime scene also said that Kirk's story did not match up with the evidence. According to Kirk's testimony, he sliced at his wife while they were both standing up and that once she was on the ground, he left. Despite this, authorities reported that the majority of blood spatter was close to the ground. Jennifer and Kirk had been standing next to a table and a shelving unit while they were fighting. Jennifer's carotid artery had been severed, meaning that with every beat of her heart, blood would be spurting out of her chest. If Kirk's story was true, that would mean that blood would have sprayed onto the table or up high on the shelving unit and it would have continued down the side as Jennifer fell to the ground. The odd thing was, the only blood spatter 
was found on the floor of the shed and the lower end of the legs on the table, meaning that Jennifer did not start bleeding heavily until she was on the ground. According to the authority testifying, this would lead them to believe that Jennifer was not stabbed or cut while she was standing. Rather, she was already on the ground when she was attacked. Authorities also identified another inconsistency that alarmed them. Kirk claimed that Jennifer had stabbed him twice with the nine-foot decorative spear. However, when examined, the spear had no fingerprints from Jennifer. And though the spear allegedly was only used to stab Kirk, the spear mainly had Jennifer's blood on it. These facts contradicted Kirk's story and further led the investigators to believe that he was not being completely honest about what happened in the shed. Authorities testified that though they could not rule out everything Kirk claimed, there were enough contradictions for them to doubt his claim of self-defense. The prosecution's lead investigator, Johnny Marks, believed there was more blood evidence that contradicted Kirk's story. Marks testified that the bloody footprints left behind at the crime scene indicate that Kirk was not the first person injured in the shed. A forensic blood analysis done on the bloody footprints revealed that Jennifer's blood was underneath Kirk's blood and was already drying by the time Kirk's blood began dropping on top of it. If Kirk's story was true and Jennifer attacked first, Kirk's blood would have been underneath Jennifer's blood, but that was not the case. The prosecution zeroed in on this as key evidence to show that Kirk's story was false and that he had intentionally murdered his wife before injuring himself. Another discrepancy the prosecution pointed out to the jury was the amount of force Kirk would have to use to kill Jennifer versus just incapacitating her. The prosecution wondered why Kirk had to go so far as to kill his wife when he could have easily overpowered her and simply gotten her to stop attacking him. Instead, Kirk took out his knife and began stabbing her. The prosecution noted that the logic did not seem to make sense and that any human with a heart would first attempt to de-escalate the situation before bringing out a lethal weapon. In response to Greg's testimony, the prosecution had some questions concerning a questionable timeline. Greg claimed to have left the shed around 8 p.m. and that he was only gone for two to three minutes. Greg said he called 911 as soon as he got back to the shed. If this was true, Greg would have called 911 a few minutes after 8 p.m. That said, this was not the time that Greg called. In fact, Greg called 911 at 9.35 p.m., over an hour and a half after he claimed to have left the shed to go to his truck. When questioned as to why there was such a discrepancy in his timeline, Greg responded that he wasn't tracking every minute of the day and that he must have been confused. Because of this, there were 90 minutes that were not accounted for in both Greg and Kirk's stories. The prosecution alleged that this gap in time was used to stage the perfect crime scene before calling 911. Greg also claimed that he gave CPR and mouth-to-mouth -to, -mouth to Jennifer while waiting for first responders. If what he said was true, 
Greg would have been covered in Jennifer's blood and presumably would have left bloody handprints on the phone that he was going back and forth to while giving CPR. When first responders arrived, they recalled a distinct lack of blood on Greg's hands. This made investigators and the prosecution doubt Greg's account of events. This suspicion was further confirmed when the medical examiner concluded that Jennifer did not receive any noticeable chest compressions on the night she died. Though the prosecution firmly believed that Greg was either involved in Jennifer's murder or at least assisting in covering it up, there was not enough evidence to prosecute him, so they focused solely on convicting Kirk Turner. The defense brought up their own blood analysis expert, who concluded that Kirk's story did hold up. Marilyn Miller examined the clothes that Kirk was wearing on the night Jennifer died. Miller noticed that the pocket Kirk typically kept his knife in only contained DNA and blood from Kirk. This fact led the defense to believe that Kirk's story of self-defense was true. If Kirk had, in fact, attacked Jennifer first, his pocket knife would have bloodstains from him and Jennifer. Because it only had his blood, the defense argued that Jennifer had to have attacked first. The prosecution countered, referring to this evidence as shaky, pointing out that there are many ways the night could have played out, including a scenario where Kirk attacked Jennifer first, without getting her blood transferred from his knife to his pocket. Despite this, the defense pressed their findings to the jury, telling them that this piece of evidence proved Kirk's innocence. In closing arguments, the defense continued to plead with the jury to see Kirk as a man who acted in self-defense. The jury was asked to believe that Jennifer attacked Kirk out of anger and that he blindly defended himself, which resulted in Jennifer's death and left Kirk with multiple stab wounds. The defense asked the jury to believe Greg Smithson's timeline and to believe that the blood evidence points to Kirk being innocent of intentional murder. The prosecution's closing argument painted a much different picture. They alleged that, embarrassed by his very public divorce, a pending lawsuit against his mistress, and millions of dollars at stake, Kirk wanted Jennifer out of the picture. The prosecution claimed that Kirk went to the farm looking for a fight, bringing along inflammatory documents that were sure to upset Jennifer. He brought the documents to her, told her to drop the lawsuit, and when she refused, he snapped, slicing at his wife with a knife he had in his pocket. The prosecution claimed that Kirk got her to the ground, where he began cutting her throat and chest, nearly decapitating her. He then enlisted the help of his best friend, and now witness, to manipulate the crime scene so he could claim that he was defending himself. Kirk inflicted two wounds on himself to appear as though he was attacked, and together, Kirk and Greg made the scene look as though there was a fight, not an attack, according to the prosecution. This would account for the inconsistencies in the evidence, such as the missing 90 minutes, the lack of fingerprints on the weapon with which Jennifer reportedly attacked Kirk, and the lack of life-saving measures performed on Jennifer. The prosecution alleged that Kirk had every intention of killing his wife 
on the evening of September 12, 2007, and that he was certain he would be able to get away with it. After a month-long trial, countless hours of testimony, and hundreds of pieces of evidence, the jury took only six hours to determine Kirk Turner's fate. As the jury filtered back into the courtroom on the afternoon of August 21, 2009, nobody was sure what the verdict would be. Wendy Turner sat behind the prosecution, praying that the jury would find her father guilty of murdering her mother. Richie Turner and Tanita Colvin sat behind Kirk Turner, hoping that he would be found innocent and that the jury would realize he was only protecting himself. The jury seated themselves and the judge was handed the envelope containing the verdict. Kirk Turner was found not guilty by reason of self-defense. The courtroom was shocked. The prosecution was blindsided as they fully believed that Kirk would be found guilty. Wendy Turner, heartbroken, immediately stood up and exited the courthouse, refusing to make any comments to the press. Kirk celebrated his freedom with his son and now girlfriend, Tanita. On the way out of the courthouse, Kirk stopped to speak with the press. Elated at the trial's outcome, Kirk thanked God and then he thanked the jury. Reactions from the public were mixed. Some were convinced that Kirk had murdered his wife in cold blood. Others thought he was telling the truth when he claimed to have defended himself. Others believed there could be a mix of truth in both. Perhaps Kirk had not planned to kill his wife, but tragically, that's just how things unfolded. Or perhaps she got physical, but not to the point that he needed to kill her to save himself. Regardless of public opinion, Kirk Turner was free. Wendy Turner submitted a written statement to the press the day after her father's verdict. In it, she called the trial a distinct failure of justice. Together, Wendy and her aunt filed a wrongful death suit against Kirk Turner. The outcome is unknown. The beneficiaries of the lawsuit, which was handled outside of court, were Wendy and Richie Turner. Today, Richie remains close with his father. Wendy, however, cut all ties with both her father and her brother. Kirk and Tanita are still in a relationship today. The jury who sat on Kirk's trial received a lot of heat for their verdict. The press depicted them as simple and unable to follow the intricacies of a formal trial. In one article, they were referred to as country bumpkins who made their decision based on personal friendships and deep-rooted biases. In an interview for 48 hours, some of the jury members were interviewed. They said they looked at every possibility, even considering second-degree murder and manslaughter. Any way they looked at it, they believed that Kirk Turner had defended himself. When asked what evidence most convinced them of this, one juror said that he, too, carried a pocket knife in his front left pocket. They also all agreed that Kirk Turner seemed like a good man who wouldn't kill someone if he didn't have to. The jurors also agreed that Greg Smithson seemed like a trustworthy man, so they were inclined to believe his story. The jury foreman, Landon Potts, said the prosecution threw stuff against the wall to see what would stick, and we felt nothing stuck. He went on to say that the defense had a theory from the beginning, and they proved their argument. 
Then, various members of the jury expressed their general dislike for one of the members of the prosecution team and how it was so hard for them to listen to him speak when he was on the courtroom floor. Shortly after his release from custody, Kirk Turner filed a suit against the county, stating that he was being framed for murdering his wife. The lawsuit was settled outside of court. At the time of Kirk's exoneration, he planned to continue operating his dental practice. He also wanted to mend the broken relationship with his daughter, Wendy. Since her father's trial, Wendy has tried to move on with her life, haunted by her belief that her father is a cold-blooded killer who got away with murder. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to subscribe to or follow my new podcast, Judgy and Juryish. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at Murderish.com. Thank you to Rebecca Banks Gilbert for becoming a Murderish Patreon subscriber. I appreciate you so much. If you guys haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. Stick around after the closing music to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include an article at journalnow.com dated August 22, 2009 by Michael Hewlett and Salem Hewlett Winston, an article at journalnow.com dated April 27, 2018 by Michael Hewlett, a CBS interactive article at cbsnews.com dated 2010 by Paul LaRosa et al., a CBS News CBS interactive article at cbsnews.com, dated April 30, 2010, by Crimesider staff. An article at wxii12.com, dated October 4, 2017. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.